This morning, our scripture reading is Matthew 27, verses 32 to 54. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. And they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross, and then we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now in the sixth hour, now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, Wait, let's see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. And when the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's good to be here with you all. Uh, my name is Reed. I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and it's a joy uh, to be here with you all. Um, yesterday, beautiful day. Did you guys, were people outside? Hopefully you were outside. Okay, some of you were good. Two of you were lovely. Uh, we had a lovely, lovely day. Uh, we were celebrating actually our, our daughter Pearl, her fourth birthday, and so uh, it was really fun. And, and, and something unique about Pearl, Pearl has this impeccable ability to identify uh, brand names and logos and like... Um, uh, symbols that represent certain organizations and products. But, I mean, it's just amazing. Like, we'll be out there like, that's Target. That's the Wall Street Journal or something like that. Uh, she doesn't read the Wall Street Journal. <laughs> Neither do I. But, uh, but she, she's just really good at identifying these products. And, and maybe, maybe it's because she spends too much time, you know, with Uncle Netflix or whatever. She probably just sees too many commercials or whatever. But, but it's just it's amazing how she can identify these things. And, and it shouldn't come as much of a surprise because we live in such kind of an icon culture where, I mean, every company... Every product, every church even, has, has a brand, a logo, a symbol that represents it, where you don't even have to see the name of the company, you just see the logo. So for example, you all know probably what this is. That's right. That's right. It's Nike. Very good. Okay, next one. You probably know this one. Instagram. Instagram. Oh, with enunciation. Very good. Instagram. Okay, next one. Pokemon. Pokemon. Yeah, that's, that's wonderful. Some of you are just like, what on earth is that thing? No, Purina, yeah, that's right, that's right, that's right. This is Purina, is it dog chow or whatever? Anyway, anybody know this one? Not Purina, that was the last one. 
Saab. Very good, Trevor. That's impressive. That's impressive. This is the Saab, the logo for Saab. Okay, the next one, next one. This one you should all get. Oh, Trevor, you just gave it away. That's right, that's right. This is one you should all know and commit to memory. This is the United States Ultimate Frisbee Association logo. You should, you should all commit this to memory, okay? This is very important. This is a vital value. No, just kidding. But that is true. That, some of you are just like, that, there's an actual association of that hippie sport? Anyway, but that, that is it. We, we don't even have to see the words of the company. The logo gives it away. And, and this has probably got to be a big decision process for a company. I mean, you think, I mean, what is the one symbol, the one logo, the one image to represent our company, to represent our product and everything we kind of stand for? It's a big decision to, to make. And in many ways, the early church was faced with a similar decision as they, as they sought to identify an icon, a logo, a symbol to represent all of the Christian faith, all of Christendom, all of those who would follow Jesus, what is the symbol we will choose? And, and there was a lot of debate and discussion. Some proposed uh, the dove, the symbol of peace. Uh, others proposed the, the fish, which is a symbol we do see affixed on the back of cars sometimes if you're a really good Christian. Uh, just kidding. Uh, but, but the ichthus fish is one. Uh, some people uh, suggested a loaf of bread as a symbol to kind of show Jesus the miracle worker, uh, Jesus the bread of heaven. But all of these paled in comparison and were distant seconds to the overwhelming consensus to decide upon the cross, that the cross would be the identifying symbol of the Christian faith. And, and, and if you've grown up in church, or even if you haven't grown up in church, we know and understand the cross is kind of, you know, associated with Christianity and Jesus. You know, it doesn't take a theology scholar to know that Jesus and the cross are associated in some way. But what we may miss is that, like, the cross has been kind of sugar-coated in some ways. That when we say Jesus died on the cross and the cross is meant to be this image of, of our faith, do we understand that the symbol that we have chosen and selected to represent the Christian faith is a symbol, is, as the hymn says, an emblem of suffering and shame? That it's a form of execution, that, that to adorn our necks with a necklace or to put it on our mantles or to get an inconspicuous tattoo that you regret later in life, uh, that I'm not speaking from experience, but the, the cross, the cross, what we're doing is putting this form of execution in our homes, on our bodies, in our churches. It would be like putting a, an electric chair on your mantle. It would be like having a tattoo of a hangman's noose as a representation of what you believe. The cross is a form of execution. And it's strange when you think about, I mean, how Matthew in particular has highlighted Jesus as the king. I mean, all throughout Matthew's gospel, I mean, from the beginning in the genealogy in chapter one, Matthew makes it clear Jesus is of the descendant of King David. At Jesus' birth, the Magi come and say, where is he born king of the Jews? Jesus in his teaching in Matthew emphasizes the kingdom of heaven. And even to his death, the, the, he is mocked ironically, as the king of the Jews. And so why not, if he's the king, why not be the, the symbol be a scepter or a crown, a, th a throne, a castle? Why a cross? Why a bloody, offensive, gruesome, horrid image that is e equates to execution? And it's interesting, even when you think about today, what does today symbolize? Palm Sunday, the day when, when Jesus is entering into Jerusalem, entering the last week of his time on earth, and he is praised and worshiped. He comes in riding on a donkey, which, which is actually the, the sign of royalty. Jesus is the king entering his last week. And yet we have chosen the symbol of death and pain and agony and torture 
to be the symbol. And so the question perhaps is in our minds, how on earth can Jesus, who is the king, suffer and hang on a cross and still be declared the king? Now, we've been journeying through Matthew, and, and, and really, in so many ways, what Matthew has been building up towards in the, the, the last half of his, of his gospel, more than that, is focusing on Jesus' last week. And really, in so many ways, it is building towards the cross. And I think what Matthew is showing us in this text this morning on the crucifixion are three things. I think he wants us to, to understand three things in this text, and that is the cross, for sure, the cry and the curtain, the cross, the cry, and the curtain. Now, the first is the cross. And, and as I mentioned, you don't need to have a theology degree to know that the cross and Jesus go hand in hand. But just because we know that they go hand in hand, it doesn't mean that we know why or how they go hand in hand. And I think it's appropriate for us to, to spend some time to, to understand what do we mean when we say Jesus was crucified, what do we mean? Do we understand the weight of that statement and what he endured? I know that I too often say this phrase and I, I express it, I sing it, I read about it, and I just gloss over. I say it so quickly, so simply, so flippantly that it's lost its meaning, its power, its weight and significance. And so because of this, I think it's, it's appropriate for us to see what is it that Jesus endured on the cross. Now, crucifixion, it was actually a form of torture that, that was invented by the Persians, not the Romans. The Persians invented it many, many years before Roman rule, and the Romans actually perfected it, if you could, if you could say perfected. They, they took this form of torture and used it as their primary means of execution for either the lowest class criminals or high profile criminals. It was the main form of, of execution in Roman day for these kinds of criminals, and, and, and arguably, it is still to this day one of the most dehumanizing, most agonizing, painful forms of death. Very barbaric. Even so much so, during the time, Cicero, uh, the ancient Roman philosopher who's a political theorist, in talking about crucifixion, he says this, quote, he says, Roman citizens should not even speak of the cross because it was too disgraceful a subject for the ears of decent people. This form, this cross, this form of execution, the way in which it was carried out is that the, the, the criminal would have to carry the crossbeam, the horizontal crossbeam, uh, from the place of their flogging and scourging to the place of execution. They would have to carry it themselves, which we actually see Matthew attesting to uh, in verse 32, where we read, as they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, and they compelled this man to carry his cross. Now, the thing to note here is that Jesus is not even capable of carrying the crossbeam, and it shows the intensity of the beating and the scourging and flogging he experienced prior to this. He was so beaten and so left for dead, he couldn't carry the crossbeam. Now, once, once the criminal would be brought to the place of execution, they would then be affixed to the horizontal beam. And then we say that they were nailed to a cross, and while that's true, we don't have the right picture in mind. When we think nails, we're not talking carpenter nails, we're talking, we're talking seven to nine inch iron spikes that would be driven through the wrists of the criminal to ensure that they would be attached to this cross so that they would not fall. Some think that the, the, the crucified were nailed to the hands, but, but that actually wasn't even possible because the hands couldn't bear the weight of an entire body. They were nailed through the wrist to ensure that they would hang for as long as they possibly could. 
once this was completed, the cross beam would then be attached to the permanent vertical beam that was planted in the ground. Sometimes it would be one piece, but typically the cross beam was then attached with the criminal on it to the beam planted in the ground. And these beams were sometimes uh, six feet tall, sometimes they were up to upwards of 15 to 20 feet tall. And that's because crucifixion was not done in isolation, it was not this secretive form of execution, it was public. So much so that, that people would come out to enjoy this perverse form of free entertainment. People would come and mock and jeer and ridicule, assault, and do far worse things to the crucified. Because in some instances, as I mentioned, they would be crucified at eye level. And so you could go and look at this person and mock them in their face. But if it was a high-profile criminal like Jesus, they would be crucified a little bit higher so that more people could see. This form of crucifixion was public. And what it did is it allowed people to add truly insult to injury. And Matthew again attests to this in his own account of Jesus' crucifixion, verse 39. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. Now to add to the shame, people who were crucified were, were crucified entirely naked that there was no ounce of dignity left for those who endured Roman crucifixion. This is a completely embarrassing situation to be in, in addition to the agonizing pain that crucifixion brought. Now, once, once the beam was attached to the vertical beam, the feet were then nailed to the vertical beam put into the ground. And this wasn't just to make sure that the body would be secure. It was actually an intentional means to prolong their living so that they would suffer as long as possible. And so the feet would be nailed so that the knees would be bent and pushed to the side. And what this did is it allowed this person to not hang all the way down, closing off their chest cavity so they would just suffocate. But by nailing their feet to the ground, it allowed them the opportunity to breathe if they wanted to. But what that entailed was that to apply all of the weight of your body onto the nails that were nailed through your feet to lift yourself up, to open your chest cavity, to inhale and exhale. Once the moment of, of longing for breathing was just unbearable, this is what the crucified had to experience. The agonizing pain of putting all your weight onto your feet to lift yourself up to breathe. Every desire for breath had to go through this experience. In fact, a few years ago, there was a, a journal, there was an article in the Journal of American Medical Association uh, that documented kind of the medical ramifications of crucifixion. And in it, they describe this in great detail here. Adequate exhalation required lifting the body by pushing up on the feet and by flexing the elbows. However, this maneuver would place the entire weight of the body on the tarsals, the bones in your feet, and would produce searing pain. Furthermore, flexing of the elbows would cause rotation of the wrists about the iron nails and causing fiery pain along the damaged median nerves. As a result, each respiratory effort, each breath taken while crucified would lead to agonizing and intense pain to avoid the death of asphyxiation or suffocation. This is what Jesus the King is enduring and experiencing on the cross. This is what he is experiencing and going through, that, that when his, as I said, the longing for oxygen was just so unbearable, when he had to breathe, this is the pain that he endured and experienced. This was unbelievably painful. And when you consider that, that as he is lifting his body up to breathe, he is also now scraping his back along the vertical wooden beam, 
which is painful enough, but when you consider that his back was so lacerated from the flogging he endured, that just adds to the pain that he's experiencing every time he took a breath. You see, the pain of crucifixion was so intense, we had to invent a word to describe it. The word excruciating that we use when we stub our toe, that word, it literally means from the cross or a pain like that of crucifixion. So great was this pain, we needed a word to describe it. And I share all of this. I, I, I say this not to emotionally manipulate you, not to dramatize it, not to try to evoke some emotion, but, but to help us understand the what behind crucifixion so that we might understand and see the why behind crucifixion. I share this so that we would have a picture at the foot of the cross to see King Jesus in this state of humiliation and pain and agony but to also see what he is accomplishing through it. But even more than that, I believe that the physical torment that Jesus is experiencing, as great as it is, it pales in comparison to what I believe he experiences in the moment that he cries out from the cross. And that's what we turn to next. As Matthew shows in verse 46, Jesus declares from the cross, there are seven sayings that Jesus says from the cross, and this is one of them. And Matthew records it for us. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, now Jesus has been betrayed, falsely accused, mocked, ridiculed, tortured, beaten. He is, he is put on the cross and eventually he is murdered. And I believe that all of that doesn't amount to a pinch when we see and understand what Jesus is enduring in this moment as he is abandoned by his Father. When you look back at Matthew's account of, of all the things that Jesus has experienced and endured, all the painful situations, both emotional and physical, leading up to the cross, there is not one place where Jesus is recorded as crying out. It doesn't mean that he didn't, and it doesn't mean that, that his pain wasn't significant. It was. But what Matthew wants us to see, he records the only time Jesus cries out is here. Not to diminish his physical pain, but to showcase and highlight what he's feeling and experiencing now is beyond anything we can comprehend. In this moment, Jesus is crying out in agony. But the question we're probably asking ourselves is this, why is he crying out? What is it that is compelling him in this moment, in this moment to cry out with a loud voice? And the cry of the cross is a cry of abandonment, or, or some refer to it as the cry of dereliction. Dereliction is, is the state of alienation and dilapidation, which is what Jesus is experiencing. And it's not just abandonment, uh, abandonment during a, a very important time. I mean, Jesus is in need of his father the most in this moment, but, but he's not just abandoned by his friends, his family members, his disciples. He is abandoned by the one whom he loves more than anything else. He is abandoned by the father who is the essence of all goodness, of all life and truth and love. And what Jesus is experiencing in this moment is complete and utter darkness to a degree that none of us can possibly imagine nor will ever experience apart from God's grace. Think of it this way. If, if, the, sun, if the sun were to simply just disappear and, and be destroyed entirely, life would end. And all that we would have to, to experience and feel is darkness, coldness, and ultimately death. What Jesus is experiencing on the cross is separation from the source of all goodness, truth, and life. 
and utter darkness comes over him, which is why I believe Matthew shows that in that moment, real literal darkness covered the earth as a way to show what Jesus is enduring in his body and soul. As Matthew says in verse 45, now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. When darkness covered the earth, it was a way for Matthew to show us in this record of the symbolic truth of what Jesus is experiencing, complete, utter darkness due to the abandonment of his father turning his face away. Theologian J.I. Packer, he he describes in, in, in great detail what it is that Jesus is experiencing and enduring in this moment. And he says this, he says, on the cross, Jesus lost all the good that he had before. All sense of his father's presence and love, all sense of physical, mental, and spiritual well-being, all enjoyment of God and of created things, all ease and solace of friendship were taken from him. And not only are all these good things taken, but they are replaced. What comes in their place is loneliness, pain, and a killing sense of human malice, and a callousness and a horror of great spiritual darkness. What this means is that in this moment, no one in human history has ever been more alone and isolated and alienated and abandoned than Jesus. No one has ever felt this kind of abandonment, separation from God himself, the source of all goodness and truth. This phrase actually that's translated in our Bible is that he cried out with a loud voice. It's actually just one word in the original language. And and it's the only time throughout the entire New Testament that this word is used in this moment to showcase and to point out the fact that what Jesus is doing, he's not just crying in pain. It's not just, ow, it's not just, "I'm, I'm I'm tired, I'm alone, I'm scared, I'm angry. It is this raw, deep, visceral, emotional response coming from a place of alienation and rejection. It is this strong verb to indicate what Jesus is going through. This is the only time this word is used. And we see the separation that Jesus is experiencing, even in the way that he refers to to the Father. Notice that he doesn't call him Father. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which is the only time in all the synoptic gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's the only time Jesus refers to God as God and not Father. That's not to say that that God is no longer the Father and that Jesus is no longer the Son, but rather it is to show that there has been a separation, an abandonment, a rejection, a divide in some way between the Father and the Son in a mysterious way that we cannot comprehend. But this mystery was accomplished for a purpose, and we're left asking the question, why? What Jesus is experiencing on the cross is in some ways the fulfillment of what he knew would happen as he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. If you remember, Jesus cried out, Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass before me, but not my will, your will be done. And so Jesus cried out to God. He wanted one thing, but the Father brought another. And in this moment on the cross, Jesus is feeling the pain, the fulfillment of that unanswered prayer. As one author put it, Jesus is expressing the agony of unanswered prayer. Unanswered, Jesus feels forgotten of God, and it is the hellish cry uttered when the undiluted wrath of God overwhelms the soul. This separation from God, this this abandonment and rejection by the Father is the act of God bringing about his righteous anger and wrath upon evil and sin, and he's doing it upon Jesus. And we are left to ask the question, why? 
How does this make sense? But one thing we also have to see is that Jesus, as he's crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Although it is a raw emotional cry, Jesus is also saying something about what he's going through. He's saying that this was to fulfill the plan all the way back from the beginning. Because Jesus' words on the cross are words of his memory and his heart that come from Psalm 22. That is a foreshadow of what Jesus experienced both in its physical torment, the cross's physical torment, and its psychological torment. And I encourage you to, to go back and read through Psalm 22 to see the details of it. But it opens up with these words, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Again, still the question remains, how does God justify this action? I mean, where does he get off treating the son in this way? How, how can we make sense of the loving God of all creation bringing about this kind of agony, pain, and judgment upon his son? I mean, this question has led theologians to, to come up with, with a way to describe this. and it, it's, it's that this is, not, this is not love. This is not sacrifice. This is not a means of God accomplishing forgiveness. This is just divine child abuse. That's nothing more. So how do we make sense of what is happening on the cross? What we have to understand is that while Jesus is experiencing separation from the Father, he is experiencing this separation, he is experiencing because God is pouring out his righteous hatred of sin upon Jesus. And he's doing so so that we would not have to endure that. Jesus on the cross becomes the object of God's divine hatred against sin so that we would not be those objects of hatred against sin. Jesus is stepping in our place. You see, the reason why the cross makes sense, the reason why the cross is an act of love is because it is an act of substitution. You know, it, it, the cross is not an act of love. If we just say, oh yeah, Jesus suffered and died on the cross to show you how much he loves you, that makes no sense whatsoever. That's an arbitrary act of love. That would be like me saying, Megan, I love you so much that I'm going to bash my hand in with a hammer. That's not love. That's stupidity. That doesn't express affection at all. The only way that act is an act of love is if the hammer were intended for Megan and I stand in her place to endure that pain. The cross is not an arbitrary act of love. It is a substitutionary act of love. The cross is not an act of God's love towards us unless we see that the cross was intended for us. As we look at the cross and we see the king suffering and hanging in agony, what we must see is that this is not just something that Christ is enduring arbitrarily, but he is doing it in our place, in our stead, for our sake, so that we would not have to. The only way Christ's death on the cross makes any sense and is truly an act of love is because at the cross, Jesus traded places with you and with me. Jesus is experiencing separation from God as an act of God's holy and righteous judgment against sin. And this is happening because on the cross, Jesus became our sin. That's what we must not miss. Jesus is not just being the object of God's wrath, purely because God has chosen that, but because on the cross in this moment, Jesus did not just simply experience our sin, 
and taste our sin and sign up for a class so that he could pass a test about sin, but he became our sin. He endured the suffering because he became our sin, our shame, our guilt, which is why the Apostle Paul so boldly and in perhaps the most succinct verse to describe the gospel in 2 Corinthians 5 says, for our sake, God the Father made him, God the Son, who knew no sin, to become sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is why the Father brings about his judgment on the Son. Not just because God is this angry deity, but because he is doing something about the sin that is in you and in me that destroys us and destroys this world. And because Christ became our sin, God could destroy him so that we wouldn't have to be destroyed. That's the picture. And and, and to understand that to an even greater degree, I mean, we all know the feeling of regret and shame and guilt that comes from our sin. When we do something we know we shouldn't have done, we want to take it back. We hate what we did and how it, how it destroyed this relationship, how it's destroying us. We so wish we could take it back. We know the feeling of that from one sin. Imagine feeling the regret and the shame and the guilt of every sin you've ever committed or ever will commit. Imagine feeling the weight of that all at once. Your knees would buckle. Your, your heart would crush. You, you would throw up from the immensity of that pain. We couldn't bear it. But to take it even a step further, imagine feeling that same regret and guilt and shame from all of your sins and then experiencing that for every single human that has ever lived and ever will live. That is what Christ is enduring in this moment. Complete separation from the Father because he is now not just the object of God's wrath, but he now is overtaken and become the sin of the world. But we have to see one more thing, is that Jesus is experiencing this. He's experiencing sin for the first time. Jesus is the sinless one, the spotless one, the righteous one, and this is his first taste of sin. Sin is a foreign essence and substance, and Jesus is experiencing it for the first time in all that it has, and it crushes him. There there was a story a few months ago um, about Von Miller. Von Miller is a defensive lineman for uh, the Broncos. And it was during the NFL season. And on his day off, he went to go see a movie. And he decided to splurge. And, and he had not one, but two slushies and some mozzarella sticks. And, and Von Miller is, I mean, he's a diligent, uh, you know, regiment of, of exercise and diet. And, and this food wrecked him. He was so violently ill that week that I, I think he didn't play, or at least didn't start. It was, I mean, it was just a violent sickness. It wasn't food poisoning. It wasn't exceptionally toxic food. It's just that he introduced a foreign substance into his body that he was not used to, and it wrecked him. To the point that in an interview, he just said, you know, I learned that you can't put unleaded fuel in a Ferrari. <laughs> and and I, I know that. I know that situation very well. <laughs> Two slushies, man, and my, I can do that in my sleep. That's nothing. But, but I, I, I say that, I say that, to, to help us understand, the reason it wrecked him is because he is so foreign to it. It doesn't understand. He has never introduced this kind of thing into his body. To a greater degree, Jesus' pain and the agony of bearing the sins of the world is magnified substantially when you understand that he is the righteous one, that not an ounce of sin has ever been experienced in his life, and he's enduring the weight of all of our sin. This is what Christ endured on our behalf 
And by becoming our sin, by trading places with us on the cross, Jesus is now able to become the object of God's wrath so that we won't have to be. The cross is an act of love because it is an act of substitution, which perhaps one of my favorite lines that that summarizes sin and the gospel in just beautiful words, the late John Stott says this, for the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. And God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Because the cross is where Jesus traded places with us, when we look upon the cross, when we see the agony of our king suffering and all of his humiliation and shame, it should offend us. It should disgust us. We should, we should be so offended by this, but what we, what we must not miss is that the offense of the cross ought to point us to the offense of our sin against a holy God. Is the cross offensive to you? Good, I'm glad it is, because perhaps it is giving us, you and me, a better picture of what our sin does to a perfectly holy, righteous God who longs to be in relationship with us, but because of sin, we can't be. We are tainted and broken. And the cross shows us that Jesus became our sin so that we would not have to suffer the wrath of God. And the cry of Christ on the cross shows us that Jesus is experiencing that. And it points to the beauty of what happens at the curtain. You see, the great temple in Jerusalem is the place where God's people came together for worship. And the temple was set up in such a way where there were these these outer courts and various places where only certain people could go. If you were a Gentile, you, you you could go to the outer courts. Everybody was pretty much allowed to be there. But then the next layer in, sorry ladies, you couldn't come in. It was only reserved for Jewish men. But then the next layer in, closer and closer in, only the priests could go in. It was reserved for just that group of people. But then the most innermost place, the Holy of Holies, the place that resembled for God's people God's presence that was reserved for the high priest who could enter once a year to offer a blood sacrifice for the sins of God's people. And this priest would enter in with his knees knocking, terribly afraid of what this place represented, and he offered sacrifice. And that place, that Holy of Holies, was divided and separated by a curtain. And this curtain was about 60 feet tall. It was so thick that some commentators think that it was, it was clo- the closest thing to being soundproof in that day. And what the curtain and what the temple is declaring and shouting to us is essentially this giant divine keep out sign. You can't come in. You can come this far, but not that far. You, you can come in a little closer, but not this far. The temple and the curtain are declaring to us, we can only go in so far. It is a divine keep out sign that says to us, because of who we are and what we've done, we cannot enter in. It doesn't matter how righteous you may think you are, how obedient you are, how, how pure your heart and motives may be. No one could enter into the temple. No one could enter into the Holy of Holies. But what happened to that curtain? What happened to that curtain? That curtain was torn in two. As Christ is hanging on the cross, as he's enduring our shame, our sin, he cries out, as we know from the other gospel accounts, what Christ declared in that moment was, it is finished. And in that moment, 
the curtain, the dividing wall, the divine keep out sign is torn in two. And that's not just to show this amazing miracle of, wow, God can rip fabric. How amazing is that? It is a picture of God saying, this divine keep out sign is no longer relevant because what Christ has accomplished on your behalf allows you to enter in. This curtain was torn. This curtain was ripped apart because Christ was ripped apart. And when we understand that this is what Christ accomplished, we are now allowed in. What Christ accomplished is the the accomplishment of, of the curtain being torn in two, Jesus being torn apart. And do you notice how the curtain was torn? It was torn from top to bottom. And that's not just a random fact. That is to point out that this work, this tearing of the curtain, of this dividing wall that keeps us from God, it is a work that cannot be done by us from bottom to top. We could not begin through our effort, through our goodness, through anything we could muster up to begin to tear this curtain from the bottom. It must be torn from the top down to show that this is a work that only God can do. That Christ on the cross is the work of God the Father And that what Christ is experiencing in all of his agony and pain is actually for our joy. As one of my favorite prayers from uh, the Valley of Vision, it's a collection of of Puritan prayers, um, in this prayer it beautifully describes this, Christ was all anguish that I might be all joy, cast off that I might be brought in, trodden down as an enemy that I might be welcomed as a friend, surrendered to hell's worst that I might attain heaven's best, tormented that I might be comforted, made ashamed that I might inherit glory, Enter darkness that I might have eternal light. My Savior wept that all tears might be wiped from my eyes. Closed his eyes in death that I might gaze on unclouded brightness. And he expired that I might ever live. What the curtain tells us is that Jesus was torn apart so that you and I could be brought together. Not just together in relationship with one another, but but truly to be brought together with every relationship that was torn apart because of sin. Jesus was torn apart so that we might be brought back to God. Jesus cried out in desperation from the cross so that we could cry out in faith and hear God say to us, you are forgiven, You you are reconciled, you are now brought in, enter in. The keep out sign has been destroyed. I think it's so important for us as as we see what this torn curtain symbolizes and represents of what Christ did on the cross, as important as it is for us to see what this accomplishes, it's equally as important for us to not miss the depth of what Christ endured. When we understand the depth of what Christ accomplished on the cross, when we understand the pain and the agony, it changes the way we look at what we have received through him. In order to stand in the triumph of the king, we do, we have to sit in the supposed defeat of the king. And I think it's important as we enter into Holy Week, as we prepare for Good Friday and the celebration of Easter, let us not so quickly get past this place of sitting in the sorrow of our king's defeat. That as we look at the cross and our Savior hanging from it, let us see our sin, let us see the reason for why he endured that pain. In fact, this is actually how Matthew ends his account. The reason why Matthew ends here, he doesn't end in, in, in triumph and, and celebration. But as we see in verses 57 and following, when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and he asked for the body of Jesus. And then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. 
And, Jesus, and Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud, and he laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. And Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. So I, I just, I want, us to, I, I want us to join these two women. I want us to sit with them opposite the tomb and, and not sit with, with a sense of great celebration. I think it's important for us to, to sit in the defeat of our king that we might be able to more joyfully celebrate in the triumph of our king. As we look at the cross, as we see our, our Savior hanging from that tree for us, may we see our sin. May we see the reason for why he went and may we see that through his defeat, we find victory. And so I just encourage us to take a moment to, to reflect and to, to be honest and open with the Lord in prayer. Just to, to sit opposite the tomb with these women and to see the defeat of our king that we might enjoy and delight in and rejoice in the, the triumph of our king. And, and perhaps this, this story has hit you afresh or hit you for the first time. Perhaps seeing what Christ endured on the cross for you has a, a, awakened within you an understanding that you did not have before. I invite you to respond to the Lord in prayer for him to, to be the one that, that is your rescue, that through Christ alone is your only way of being brought in. And so let's just take a minute to sit opposite the tomb, reflect on the cross, and to see the reason for why we were there. What he endured, as we sang earlier, was for you and for me and for all. Let's take a minute to pray. Lord Jesus, before the cross we kneel and see the heinousness of our sin our iniquity that caused you to be made a curse, the evil that excites the severity of divine wrath. Show us the enormity of our guilt by your crown of thorns, by your pierced hands and feet, by your bruised body, and by your dying cries. Your blood is the blood of incarnate God. Its worth is infinite. Its value beyond all thought. Infinite must be the evil and guilt that demands such a price. Oh, that my every breath might be ecstatic praise, my every step buoyant with delight as I see my enemies crushed, Satan baffled, defeated, destroyed, and sin buried in the ocean of reconciling blood. Go forth, O conquering God, and show me the cross, mighty to subdue, comfort, and save. Lord Jesus, show us the cross. Show us yourself. Show us our sin. And show us that this is the only way that we may be brought in to the Father. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. The cross, the cry, the curtain. Why would Jesus have to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the answer is, he died for me. He died for you. Jesus was torn apart so that we could be brought together with the Father. I think the thing that hit me on the, the sermon was reads the analogy of because of love, and you don't hit your hand with a hammer. It doesn't make sense. But Jesus received that hammer blow because of his love for us, because we deserved it. That is what Christ did for us. With that in mind, let's uh, read our benediction coming from the book of Isaiah. This was written hundreds of years before Christ came. To, to be born, to live, to die for us, and then also, as we know in a week, to be resurrected. Book of Isaiah, chapter 53. He was despised and rejected by man, 
a man of sorrows and accompanied with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. Amen. Go in peace.